0: This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends.
2: What does motion sound like? With Kizikans Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizzik.com slash socks.
0: Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. This show focuses on the systems and institutions that prop up white evangelical power and influence in America and the world. Season one is focused on white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. I'm delighted to share this conversation I had with Diana Battler-Bass with you. I had initially planned for this conversation to provide a survey of the early development of fundamentalism in white American Christianity, but our talk went to unexpected places. We ended up talking about trauma, trauma responses, and its role in spurring some later developments in American Christianity. To that end, it felt like a bridge between this show and Exvangelical, the podcast I've been hosting for the past four years. Diana and I talked back on May 4th, 2020, and a lot has happened in America since then. The unjust death of George Floyd on May 25th sparked a nationwide reckoning with America's original sin of racism. Protests were organized across the country as people were moved to collective action even amidst an uncontrolled pandemic. If this conversation fails to capture or reflect the urgency of that moment and all subsequent moments, it is because when we spoke, they had not happened yet. This episode was produced by Jake Lewis. You can support the show by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts and by subscribing to my newsletter at postevangelicalpost.com. Without further ado, let's get to this conversation with Diana Butler-Bass. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the new show, Powers and Principalities. My first guest is Diana Butler Bass. She is an academic and author of several books, including Christianity After Religion, A People's History of Christianity, and her latest book is titled Grateful, The Subversive Practice of Giving Thanks. Diana, thanks for joining the show.
2: Well, it is an honor to be the first guest on your new on your new podcast
0: (laughs) well thank you very much for for coming on i really appreciate it Uh, i wanted to have you on this show because you really excel at communicating about american religious history to popular audiences and you also studied under george marsden at duke who's a major figure in the study of american evangelicalism and fundamentalism here in the united states and that this show is really all about giving context to that side of american christianity understanding the history of fundamentalism and its relationship to both the religious right from around the 70s up to now within Trumpism is just really, really important to understand what's happening politically and socially. So with that in mind, uh, where and when did modern fundamentalism begin to take shape here in the United States?
2: Well, you know, with every historical question, that is... An argument that historians have. Um, you know, I was trained by Marsden, and I think that the way that he taught us the, the story, and, and that I think is faithful uh, to the evidence, is that it really began in the late 19th century. The, sort of the general way of understanding American religious history, when it comes to evangelicalism and fundamentalism, is that much of Protestantism throughout the 19th century um, had an overall evangelical cast to it. Um, That evangelical and Protestant and Christian kind of all meant the same word. And, uh, you know, it, it, it meant mostly a kind of Protestantism that was personal, that took Bible reading seriously, That was not institutional in its strictest senses, really elevated the priesthood of all believers, you know, certain kinds of distinctives of of Protestantism that took hold um, in the United States. But you get into the late 19th century and that overall sort of evangelical ethos of American Protestantism began to be challenged uh, by a whole range of issues. The issues were internal theological ones, because in the late nineteenth century you begin to get the development of uh, biblical criticism and historical understandings of the Bible that really rock the whole world of of Protestantism, not just in the United States but in Europe as well. So you have th- those kinds of internal issues, and then there's a, a number of issues related to Social change, like um, immigration and economic concerns, uh, things that lead to the development of the social gospel. Issues that begin to prompt questions about uh, race and ethnicity that uh, people don't necessarily deal with terribly well. And so you have those those internal questions, and you have these external Mm -hmm. sort of social movements pressuring. Evangelicalism, and then there's also a, a, a whole bunch of scientific issues uh, that come to the fore uh, about creation and the age of the earth and geology and biology and evolution and all of those things began to really sort of tear at the fabric of Protestantism. And it's in, in that pressure with this whole set of internal theological issues large social changes and scientific um ideas uh, that you begin to develop a split uh, within american protestantism and that split creates sort of two large camps of protestants with a whole bunch of people in the middle you know trying to avoid the trouble, <laughs> as it were, because oh, that's always the case. There's always a whole bunch of people in right, the middle yeah, who look just... at all, all these <laughs> kinds of arguments and say, wait a second, I'm that doesn't define me. But 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 nevertheless, you get these two kinds of very loud, very public <laughs> right. groups um that start to argue. And one group says for the most part, um that Christians can accept scientific change and have to deal with the social problems of a given age and that there's nothing to fear about biblical criticism. And that group becomes known as what was first just called liberal evangelicals and then later shortened to liberals and then modernists. And then the other group um, who said, no, uh, you can't do any of that. Uh, You, the scientific findings have to be taken secondarily to the biblical narrative that these kinds of social changes don't matter because the gospel is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then the theological issues, they were just mostly unwilling um, to look at the kinds of biblical criticisms that were developing and said, no, you know, the Bible, you just read it straightforward. And so that group who began to really say, we already had everything we needed that the gospel has already been preached and that all we have to do is reassert the traditional interpretations and the traditional doctrines and everything will be fine. And that group became known as fundamentalists.
0: Do you think it's fair to describe those fundamentalists as reactionary against all of these different social and intellectual changes? Uh, as you mentioned, they're like within the realm of Christianity, there was What is called the social gospel which is very oriented towards addressing social needs and then it was the response to german high criticism that led to the development of a lot of fundamentalist beliefs as well as all these social things do you think it's it's fair to use a a term like reactionary to describe the way in which um these fundamentalists basically dug in and said that this is actually the the way in which we should understand the scriptures and understand our relationships with society
2: you know i i think that had you asked me that question maybe even five years ago i would have said yes you know it, that that's that's fair but um i think now i kind of see it a, a little different way you know re, the, the word reactionary itself is you know it's a really loaded term and mm. you know if we think of the the sort of the what it was like to live in the late 19th century, which I actually think we as early 21st century people can have a lot of sympathy for. I see a lot of similarities in the sort of the cultural anxieties of the late 19th and early 20th century here a hundred years later. And so what I think happens at any given moment in historical timeline is that stuff occurs, you know, new, new ideas come up, uh, New books are written. New idea, you know, kind of uh, new patterns of community uh, come to the fore. Uh, people who haven't previously had voice begin to express their voices, and all of that causes reactions among all of uh, every group of human beings. Mm-hmm. And so and so now, you know, when I would have said one time, oh yeah, the fundamentalists were reactionary against liberal culture and that they were just trying to, you know, protect themselves against all these changes. I think that probably the fairer thing to for for me, fairer way for me to think about it at least, is that human beings react to change. And liberal the people who became Protestant liberals were reacting to change as well. They were reacting. By saying, you know, these are worth these ideas are worth listening to. Maybe there's something here that we can learn from. Maybe we haven't always understood the what Jesus intended in terms of living in a, a just universe. And so they were reacting. Their adaptation was a reaction to those those things. And I think the fundamentalists were doing the same thing as well. You know, as they were also reacting. Um, and and they adapted. And so, so what I what I think is the the false narrative is that either one of these two sides emerged from the 19th century into the first years of the 20th century, maintaining a kind of Protestantism that had been practiced, say, 50 or 70 years before. Mm. Both groups reacted to social change and intellectual change. And I think also internal pressures within their own traditional, their own tradition. Um, And they formed two different pathways really of adapting to those changes. And, and so I would rather think of that as adaptation and transformation rather than, just being "quote unquote" reactionary because of the nature of the word reactionary.
0: It does have a loaded connotation, for sure.
2: Yeah, it does. And, and in this conversation, I think you know one of the things that's really important to do is to try to, you know, what, what any good historian is always trying to do is put herself and him or himself, you know, back into the narrative and say, you know, how how would I feel? You know, how did these people how did these people see their moment? And so uh, so I think that, you know, very few people were, were standing there, you know, kind of um, imagining themselves, you know, in a way that was negative. They saw themselves as the heroes of their mm-hmm. own stories. And, you know, one group, the more modernist and liberal types, were heroes in their own story. They believed that they were protecting or saving Christianity by adopting these new ideas and fundamentalists had the exact opposite approach.
0: Yeah and I I am certainly sort of showing my cards a little bit as being someone that moved from more conservative um faith of origin to one that is more open or more liberal for lack of a better word. So I appreciate the the way in which you responded to that question even the way in which I which I worded it. So thank you for exploring that with me.
2: Well, it makes a difference I think into how we read the stories, you know, because I mean, I can I can look back in the history of fundamentalism and, you know, want to tear my hair out because I journeyed through evangelicalism as a personal experience, a personal narrative, um, mostly in the 1970s, 80s and 80s, uh, for about 15-17 years of my life. And and so you know, kind of coming out of that on the other side, I had very strong reaction against it, and it, and that was very problematic for me because I had considered myself an evangelical all the way through my undergraduate, my um, seminary education, and even into my PhD when I was studying studying with Marsden, and so my personal identity was wrapped up in the historical narrative that I was studying. And um, while I was working with this historical narrative, I always wanted to give it the benefit of the doubt because I wanted my tribe to look good, which is true for a lot of the people who are well-known historians in this field. You know, Mark Knoll does not want, Mark Knoll who taught at Wheaton for years and then Notre Dame, um, you know, he he doesn't want evangelicals to look bad. Those are his people, right. you know. Uh, right. George, George Martin did not want evangelicals to look bad. Those are his people, you know. And and so what you try to do as a historian, and I'm so grateful that I studied with these these types of, of thinkers. It was almost all men because there were very few women in the field um, back then. There was only... One woman, a real note, a woman named Edith Blumhofer, who um, studied the history of Pentecostalism and so um, so I, most of these people I studied with, you know that they, they were in a real on a real mission to understand what had been good about their own tribe, and that meant that they approached fundamentalism far more sympathetically than any other generation of scholars since the argument started, you know, a hundred year, hundred years ago. So, so I really, I wear that, uh, I hope still well, even though I think I struggled with that as soon as I found myself in a much more liberal place, I sort of wanted to go back and, you know, sort of trash the fundamentalists, um, historically, but I found that I really kind of couldn't. And, um, you know, I think that for People always think of me as a pretty harsh critic of fundamentalism. Uh, they have no idea how much harsher I could have been <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> all along the way, and, and and I actually because I I sort of stepped out of the place and I had less invested in then trying to defend mm-hmm. my tribe. I think I'd actually kind of see the history of fundamentalism in some very different ways than a lot of my colleagues who were either liberals who wanted to run it down or who were, you know, kind of tribal um, elders who were doing great work um, as I think good historians should do, but who were nevertheless personally invested in ways that they wanted to tell the narrative. And it's, you know, most glowing terms, as it yeah,
0: and there's obviously so much to critique and so many negative experiences within fundamentalism. Um, these are definitely not always the easiest things to talk about, and it's definitely not something that can all be summed up in a single conversation. Um, but I, I, I do totally understand that perspective too. Just in that that a lot of people come from this background, and it is it is understandable how people think that way, even if they develop a different way of thinking later. Um, and that doesn't discount someone's experience, and it doesn't discount um, the injustices that are that are perpetrated through these things and through a lot of these beliefs. Um, but to your point, these were also people trying to understand a, a vastly changing world. And that is definitely something that that we can relate to in our current moment in history.
2: Yeah, and you know, there I, I think that it's always a good practice, you know, to kind of travel back that hundred years and to uh, continually look for the things that surprise us. You know, um, my one of the things that liberals hate to talk about, you know, for example, is you know how incredibly poorly Protestant liberals handled uh, Jim Crow in the late nineteenth century. You know, you can look pretty far and wide in some of the best liberal theology and even social ethics um, in the late 19th century and find any mention at all of lynching or, or Jim Crow or the, or the quote unquote race problem. Um, as a matter of fact, you'll find kind of some stuff of the opposite that's really unpleasant and very hard to deal with. Notice you do find within some of those theologians um, a fascination for eugenics.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the downsides of liberalism is that when it was looking at new thinking, um, one of the ways that was considered to be kind of new thinking about the race problem in the late 19th century was around the emerging science, science quote unquote, of eugenics. And so, you know, the same people who on one hand said, you know, Charles Darwin is right. And that, that doesn't take, a, you know, that doesn't undermine uh, us being Christians, that we can believe in evolution and be, believe in Christianity. If you had asked those same people about what they might think about eugenics, they would, they would put eugenics in the same category with Charles Darwin. And so, and so there's a problem you know, <laughs> if ever there was right. one. Um, and then you've got a host of problems that develop within fundamentalism about particularly hierarchies, race, race and gender, um, you know, a real inability uh, to be able to, what, is, what are the best words I'm thinking of, trying to think of? It, it, they, the gatekeeping impulses of fundamentalism were so extraordinarily strong. And so there was a kind of, I think, almost uh, institutional terror factor that gets built into early years of fundamentalism, because if you cross certain lines, you're considered to be out. Right. Um, and at one point, I actually wrote a paper that was never published. It was right as I was sort of leaving evangelicalism there. I have these papers, three of them, on the history of fundamentalism that remain in my files as unpublished work. But I wrote a paper on on an early president of Biola University, Bible Institute of Los Angeles in the 1920s, 1930s. And this president of Biola um, pressed against some of the edges of fundamentalism. And um, the the, the institutional and sort of gatekeeping powers of the new fundamentalist movement came down on him like a ton of bricks and um, eventually ruined his life and um that's you know that's been a pretty constant thread in fundamentalism is the destruction of of uh individuals for the sake of what they feel like is true right and and so neither one of those things is you know either what i explained about liberals a moment ago sort of their um, uncritical acceptance of all forms of what they perceive to be science or fundamentalists um fascination with Uh, making boundaries um, and the control of other people um, is really part of the problem. But then then you've got this goofy thing that happens like with Pentecostals, you know, people hardly ever talk about them. But a hundred years ago, there were some very radical forms of Pentecostalism. There were Pentecostals who were so close uh, to being Marxists uh, that it, you can almost not separate the, them intellectually or politically uh, from one another. Uh, a lot of Pentecostals were involved in labor organizing, democratic socialist movements flirted with the edges of Marxism. Uh, there are papers written about how Pentecostals in the 1930s paved the way for the New Deal and FDR during the the Great Depression, especially in California. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole book written called The Vision of the Disinherited, which is a radical interpretation of the lower class roots of Pentecostalism. And um, of course, Pentecostalism in its earliest stages was fully integrated. Um, And so here you have these kind of two things, liberalism and fundamentalism with this other weird kind of cousin growing up on the sidelines. Um, And all of this is happening in the early 20th century to American Protestants. And so, you know, what's unexpected here, you know, is like, this is is a really interesting story. And we don't pay attention to all of its unanticipated edges.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a very good point. And so much of what we are talking about has sort of been default talking about the white church. And things like the Pentecostal tradition, as you mentioned, have a lot more... Ethnic diversity and representation in that regard. That whenever we're talking about these sorts of things, and the history of what becomes the religious right, that is oftentimes discussing primarily white experiences. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even though this is a presidential election, there are many more candidates on the ballot besides the president. Go to Ballot Ready for a nonpartisan guide to your entire ballot. From there, you can compare candidates based on stances on issues, biography, or endorsements, and then save your choices to use when you vote by mail or in the voting booth. You can even request your absentee ballot or make a plan to vote early or on election day. This election matters. Make sure you have a plan to vote and vote informed. Um. I do want to talk a little bit about another key historical point in that early 20th century period, which is the Scopes Monkey Trial. And again, using the word reaction, just the the effect of that verdict. For for some time, it was sort of considered as if the fundamentalism went, quote unquote, like underground around that time. But that is not really the consensus anymore, I don't believe. Um, How did that affect the way in which these groups that had become begun to codify and begun to formulate formal institutions. There's a lot of Christian colleges that were that were founded in the 1920s that became and are still around 100 years later uh, that are more conservative, evangelical, that sort of bent of a Christian college. A lot of them were founded around that time. But how did that particular historical event Affect that conversation amongst, again, using these broad terms of fundamentalists and more liberal Protestants.
2: I I can't believe you actually are asking me to talk about these things because my my longtime editor, who is now my literary agent, um, he has been begging me for the last five years to write a new history of this very time period. Hmm. Of, of fundamentalism and evangelicalism beginning in the teens and especially you know, how the Scopes Monkey Trial has an impact on American Protestantism going forward. And, and I think part of the reason why, why he wants me to write a book is because I, I am dissatisfied with a lot of the interpretations of what happened. And I, you named one of them. And one of those interpretations is, well, there was the Scopes Monkey Trial, which the professor who taught evolution was brought on, put on trial by the state of Tennessee for teaching Darwin, because teaching Darwin was against the law in the state of Tennessee. And of course, uh, John Scopes was the name of the teacher, and he was found guilty of teaching evolution. And he was fined, I think it was $1, $10, very little amount of money. Uh, for for his crime. So in effect, what happened was um, the anti-evolutionary forces, although they they won um, in a very sort of narrow sense of the word, winning the case, they lost. As uh, my old friend Randall Balmer likes saying, they lost in the court of public
1: opinion.
0: Mm, and I yeah, and I actually misspoke when I said that. That the verdict was in favor of evolution. it was oh, and the, that, yeah. that, that was me. That was me misspeaking because i was I was thinking about the public opinion. Right. The
1: <laughs> and, I,
2: and I was actually so much thinking about 1925 that I, I didn't notice that you had said that.
0: Yeah, but, so that was um, my mistake. I want to correct that on the air here. <laughs> and,
2: and And that, of course, is is you know what happened, you know, historically. Mm-hmm. and so what my what historians have done with that has been interesting over the last almost century now. And, you know, one group of historians say, oh, well, liberalism won, you know, and then they, they go on. And if you read a lot of histories of American religion, particularly ones written in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you would have seen a kind of a triumphal sort of uh, depiction of the liberal tradition in, in America. And that begins to kind of get all messed up, you know, with jimmy carter getting elected president in 1976 is like people said well wait a second where'd these where'd this come from evangelicals you know some southern guy who's talking jesus and what what how how and and so the narrative was liberals won and fundamentalists went away well then the narrative became well hey liberals seem to win where did these fundamentalists come from you know, and so uh, the first take was, oh, it was regional religion. You know, it was mostly confined to the South. And then the sort of the second take on it was that um, these uh, groups had consigned themselves, you know, to the margins of American culture. Uh, but the more recent, and I think the the better uh, understandings are, is is yes, fundamentalists did I think feel um, defeated in certain ways uh, in the mid 1920s, particularly related to scopes. Um, But it didn't cause them to go away and sort of lick their wounds on the margins of culture. It it pushed them into a new kind of creativity. Mm, mm -hmm. And that creativity begins to express itself in the founding of a whole bunch of new institutions um, new mission boards, new seminaries, new Bible colleges. I went to one of those schools. Um, I went to, I was, a gra- I graduated from Westmont college in California, which was founded in 1940. And so, um, so that whole the, the late twenties, the 1930s and 1940s, while a lot of American religion was kind of in a slump, uh, due to the depression, Uh, fundamentalists were kind of surprisingly regrouping themselves and said, okay, well, you know, if uh, the New York times doesn't want us, we're going to go ahead and start our own publishing houses, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, so there was a lot of surprising and creative investment um, that fundamentalists were making in a world that they could see would that they hoped would emerge sometime in the future to have a more prominent public voice again. Uh, So, so if you, you know, like I said, if you look at them fairly uh, you, you do see uh, more going on there than, you know, just a bunch of picks who have been uh, embarrassed by elite culture and who take their wounds and run away. And so so those are kind of the interpretations that are present, you know, sort of in our culture. And the the thing that I'm playing with and that I'm really interested in is, this is kind of weird to say this because it's kind of out of fashion historically. Not much I can do with it, but I'm kind of become very interested in a psychological interpretation of american protestantism in the 20th century and what i think happened around scopes is incredibly important and i think what happened was you you get this narrative that begins to appear in the press um around scopes and it's in and if you if you're if you just look at it objectively in some ways, it's it's a it's it's a really kind of nasty narrative. Um, and that is the people who are holding to the fundamentals of faith and who are you know biblical literalists are all depicted as you know sort of unwashed masses of people who don't think about anything. And I mean, they're depicted as Hicks. That's where that, that's kind of the you actually get language like that that's used in major uh, northern newspapers and in radio media um, about the people who are involved in Scope's monkey trial. And so all of a sudden, you know, there are there are people within fundamentalism who who do understand themselves as intellectuals who went to places like Princeton Seminary and who are the pastors in churches, not just in small Southern towns, but in Northern towns and cities. And they kind of maybe, you know, they, they actually hold to these fundamentals, you know, maybe not in the same way that is being demonstrated in Dayton, Tennessee at the time, but they are sympathetic to not going fully with Darwin. And they're pretty well-educated people. And now all of a sudden all fundamentalists are being painted with this same brush, the same brush of being these rural, unwashed masses who really aren't worthy of uh, serious attention in the culture. And so when they lose in the court of public opinion, as it were, that does something to them (laughs) you know I I can't imagine George Marsden his own father was one of these well-educated Presbyterian conservatives and then all of a sudden George would some George would sometimes relate the story when in class is that when he was a young boy he couldn't figure out why all of a sudden his neighbors were like making fun of his family when his father as a conservative um, resisted some of the more liberal moves made in the Presbyterian church. And what this did is it, you know, it really created for the Marsden's, you know, this kind of sense of well, how, what? You know, we're the same people we've always been and why all of a sudden is, are people turning against us? And so I, I think that this narrative that the liberal America embraced about fundamentalism, that they were picks and um, uneducated and had nothing to say to the world and all this kind of stuff. I, I think that that psychologically um made fundamentalism kind of worse
0: so just that their their pride had been wounded so many times in that regard
2: yeah sure any of us who are treated with that kind of derision you know go into a place of of extraordinary defensiveness and what then i i think what happened is to use this this language that I think a lot more of us are more, are familiar with now. Is I think the Scopes Monkey Trial created a trauma for conservative Protestants, some of whom identified with the word fundamentalist, and that and that trauma then uh, becomes. Uh, the template on which their reaction takes place. And so, okay, so, and, and now this is, see, this is the place where I think you could tell the story of American Protestantism really differently. Because here now you have a group of people who have a worldview, admittedly, that is about gatekeeping, that is admittedly unwilling to engage certain kinds of ideas in the culture, that is very interested in boundaries, that really wants order and it it prizes order. So that's the worldview of these these conservatives. That was their adaptation to emerging liberalism in the early part of the 20th century. And then they feel that all of that has been assaulted in the worst, most undignified way possible in this large Mm. national uh, media uh, sort of frenzy and so they move into a place where they feel incredibly traumatized and what happens when you're a traumatized person is that the your first thing you want to do is you want to fight back you know you want to and and so what how they fight back is that they come at li- liberal protestants as hard as they can and they you know heresy trials and uh, name-calling and say that liberalism can never be Christianity and they b- remove themselves from liberal institutions because they feel like they cannot be polluted by the contagion and and so so what you what you have then is is now liberals are sitting on the other side of this and they're going well wait a second hey calm calm down you know <laughs> uh we're we're Christians too, you know, we're we're Christians, we, we believe in the Bible, you know, we worship God, we have Sunday school, we love our children, we're doing missionary work, and yet what happens now, then the next move is, is the people who have been traumatized, work is, they're full of shame, they're, and they're trying to project their shame out into the world, and what do they do, but they turn around, and they scapegoat, their own cousins in the very denominations that they that had just been that they've just left and they say you're the problem right and 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 nobody anybody who's being scapegoated they they respond to that and they say well you know uh, to the person who's doing the scapegoating either well you don't exist or you don't matter or We told you so, we always knew that you were really awful people. And so it reifies the original complaint. All it does for the people who are now being scapegoated is it makes the people who are who are carrying this sense of shame for this trauma, it makes them dig dig their heels in. And so what I really think we have in twentieth century Protestantism is this American Protestantism is this endless sort of cycle of shame and scapegoating and it, it's never resolved. And all it does is it keeps getting passed down into new
0: generations. So do you think that that sort of response makes them unable to, do you think that makes them unable to admit that when it came to the original thing in question, which was this trial, they can't even accept that scientific consensus has moved on because they are more wrapped up in the response to the consensus and to the embarrassment that followed. And then that is what sort of feeds the culture war as because they have a stayed and sort of particular, as you've mentioned, like hierarchy is important, and any any additional information that threatens a hierarchy is viewed as, a life or death style threat. Correct. I understand both perspectives.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: However, the way in which culture wars continue to play out
1: mm-hmm.
0: within these um, within these groups. And now, like you fast forward a hundred years and now there's at least two entirely separate media ecosystems in which someone can exist. As someone can exist in a world in which they, um, you know, the I've heard it as the the chan of Fox News pipeline um, of like a deeply conservative type of belief uh, and interpretation of, of objective events, and then you have the the other side of media of the left, uh, and however you want to classify that. Um, yeah, it's just hard to 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 hold hold that and see that across a hundred years. <laughs> um, but do you think that that's part of the fun a struggle for a fundamentalist is separating a catalyzing event from the emotional response to it?
2: Yes, and this is where a whole different kind of science comes into play. And in the last couple of years, all of these different things, like I said, my interpretation of fundamentalism has really changed radically in the last couple of years. And part of it is because I've spent time reading a lot um, about trauma um, and shame and um, also processing some levels of these things that are part of my own life, mm-hmm. um, which, I, which I've written about as well, um, as a survivor of sexual assault, um, and then also, as a, a survivor of religious trauma, um, I would say as well. so i think I think what happened, you know, is that the original thing, um this 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 argument that happened within, if we we have to always remember that American Protestantism sort of held itself very proudly out as America's religion. For all of the diversity that existed within American Protestantism in the 19th century, and there was a lot of it, and people love to argue between Methodists and Calvinists and all these kinds of different things. There was nevertheless this sort of uh, sense of American identity as a Protestant nation. And that was a a very sort of um, proud marker of what it meant to be an American in the world, Um, especially as the United States was leaving its, Infancy and becoming a global player, the Protestant nation, you know, as it were, and so, so, so it was within that uh, sense of identity, we're Protestant, that this this dramatic kind of of uh, fight occurred, really, and this breaking up of this sense of identity, and so you get to these events in the in the in the twenties, and. I think that they just—they were led up to by a whole series of events, but when they happened, it crystallized it. It became the 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 um, you know, sort of the prism through which the past would be seen and the future would be interpreted. And it, it doesn't surprise me, you know. We're talking uh, together on the day that marks the year anniversary of Rachel Held Evans dying you know, and that her first, she, and she's from Dayton, Tennessee, and that her first book was called, you know, Evolving in Monkey Town, mm-hmm. and it was about this very thing, about growing up really in the, the heart of where this crisis, you know, happened, and what, and so what, was so the, the point is, what I have learned from science and psychology, and from sociology and all the different kinds of things that inform my larger work, it's a theologian and a historian, is that there's this field that's emerging as a very exciting and interesting field. And it's called epigenetics. And the idea of epigenetics, and it's it's, it's the research, it's very deep, you know it's it's it, the research in this field is very profound and what it's showing us is that trauma imprints patterns not only on the people who go through the trauma but on the DNA of the people who go through the trauma and when the next generation is born that DNA the DNA that was affected by the trauma is altered in the next generation mhm and that we actually pass trauma and potentially things like shame about trauma and our reactions to trauma, we actually pass those on to the next generation of people um, biologically. And most of this work is done around two different kinds of trauma survivors, um, Holocaust survivors and their families, and and so a lot of it's being done in um, Israel and is in Israeli universities, and then uh, another body of the research is being done around uh, uh, sexual assault and uh, people who are born to people who are born to people who are sexually abused, and so all this research is showing that our DNA actually gets Twisted or deformed or broken in different ways um, by trauma, and that that goes biologically into the future. And so, so what what I think that that shows us, and what researchers are arguing, is, that, is it is it shows us that people who are born to trauma victims have um, they're predisposed to certain kinds of emotional and physiological responses, just in the same way a person who has say, a a cancer mutation in their genes. If you put them into a certain kinds of situations, certain kinds of situations environmentally, they're more likely to develop cancer than somebody who doesn't have that mutation. And so now we're discovering that that's true about trauma as well, is that you can carry around a trauma gene and you would be just fine. But if something happens to you that is like a trauma that might have been imprinted in your genes by an ancestor, uh, that you have the trauma mutations, as it were, in your gene, is that you will react as if you are being traumatized. And so, in the same way, a person with a trauma or the the cancer mutation has to avoid the environmental threats has to live a healthy life, has to make certain kinds of, of, of uh, health decisions. Um, they're developing treatments um, before the development of cancer that can potentially keep people from developing cancer. That's what we, we have to do with trauma as well, is what this research is beginning to suggest. And so my question becomes, if that is true for individuals, Why isn't that true for traditions? And I really think that what has happened is that what we have lived in for the last 100 years with American Protestantism is that it has been a traumatized religious tradition broken into two and more families as a result of the trauma, but the two main families have spent the better part of the last 100 years um, shaming and blaming across this field of unresolved trauma. And that has done untold damage on American culture because of course, the largest religious tradition through the 20th century was American Protestantism. Yeah. And, and it's, it still is the largest, even though it's not as large as it used to be. But I think, I actually think that it's very decline is a result of this unresolved trauma.
0: Hmm. It's a very interesting way to think about institutions and the the ways in which they, Develop and the way in which they respond to one another, um, and the the ways in which they dialogue. I mean, so much of this, uh, you know, there's the this sort of stuff is endlessly complex, and a, a lot of what we we're talking about hasn't touched on things related to America's original sin of slavery and racism, and how that factors into to all of this. This is definitely not <laughs> how I how I thought. Our sort of conversation would go in in developing a sort of sympathy for the fund for amongst fundamentalists and and all those things, but it's it's appreciated <laughs> because it's such a fascinating way to think about these institutions and the ways in which we exist in them because I mean, right. it connects there's a lot of disconnects in American society. There's so many, uh, one of them being, you know, generational. Uh, and so sometimes it's hard for. Someone who's a millennial or younger to relate to uh, someone who's a boomer or older um, and contextualize their experiences. But when you say that, when you put it within the scope of history and say this, these sort of initial traumas from over 100 years ago are still playing out in our, like, they were playing out in the lives of the silent generation, the greatest generation, the, the boomers, everyone <laughs> up to now.
1: It's, fascinating. it's it's fascinating,
2: and and for me, it does it does a lot. As a historian, it gives me a, another lens into the larger story. And you ask questions about like the you know the Fox News uh, sort of world and the world of you know like MSNBC and the Nation and all those kind. You know, we have these different sorts
1: mm-hmm.
2: of pl- places to go. Well, in a sense, you know, the Fox News world and MSNBC are the logical descendants of uh, this trauma. You know, is that they're the development of places where people want to be kept safe, Mm -hmm. you know, where they don't want to be called hicks by a bunch of elitists and where they don't want to be called heretics by a bunch of uh, southern yahoos, you know, and that's the way the story has been. Imprinted on us all mm-hmm. and now instead of just working yourself out in your local southern baptist church and your local U- unitarian universalist mm-hmm. congregation Um, which is the the main some of the main places of public discourse of earlier generations What used to be a distinctly religious trauma has moved into a far more secular space And has had huge impacts on mm-hmm. our media on our educational systems and on our political life, mm-hmm. but I really do think that it has to go back to at least in part this unresolved trauma from the early decades of the early twentieth century. So it helps us understand those big questions. I don't know about I don't know about you all. You how like I don't know how old you are. How old are you?
0: I'm thirty six.
2: Okay, and I'm sixty one. And um, what it does, I think in an interesting way for both of us sitting in very different generational sort of places is I always wonder to myself, why did I, why did I ever join a fundamentalist church of my own free will? Mm -hmm. You know, I I mean, I wasn't born into it. I joined it because I was at one point in my life looking for order and clarity especially if you were a teenager in the 1970s, and today's also the anniversary of Kent State, which happened when I was 11 years old. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And, you know, when you are an 11-year-old and you watch, we all watch the same television. You know, we had three channels. We watched all those same three channels. And that news came on that night. That's the first news story I remember in its fullness. Watching people who were in authority shoot down students who were not that much older than me and my whole sort of teenage years of the 1970s then were set into this question about chaos and fear
0: and my my one of my first ones is columbine which is oh yeah oh gosh yes and i was home i had an appendectomy and so i it was the first live news event i remember watching unfold in that way as an adolescent, as uh, like, I think, a sophomore in high school at the time. Both shootings, both, yeah.
2: Yeah, and, you know, so, so so then as my own journey unfolded, I chose to become an evangelical because it felt safe, whereas my own tradition, I grew up in a more liberal Methodist church, talked glowingly about things like ambiguity and questions. And, I, you know, I I love that now, but when you're 11 and you've seen Kent state on your television and it's like, no, I don't want questions. You know, I want order. I want somebody to make me safe. And so, so, so my experience helps me understand why I went, you know, towards fundamentalism and it, it helps me understand that in a very sympathetic way. But then, you know, when I, when I got out of it, I, I carried with me for many years afterwards a sense of guilt and maybe even internalized shame that I had surrendered my own intellect and my own power to this religious group yeah. that, that asked me for it, or really demanded it from me, right. but I did, I did it willingly. I mean, I was like a victim of Stockholm syndrome. Mm-hmm. And, and so I felt terrible about that. You know, and yet it really wasn't until I got to this point where I started thinking about trauma and shame and blame and how this whole big history unfolded and how that big history interacted with my own small history that I could let myself off the hook.
0: Yeah. When, what you're sharing reminds me of an axiom from Marshall McLuhan. He would always use the term "electric man," and he says, "Electric man lives mythically and all at once," meaning that when our media, as it's been ever since the dawn of TV, has been so instantaneous, and it's only accelerated now, like with Twitter, like there's a cultural event every cultural event every two hours. Right. The way in which we respond to that, as you said, big history and small history. It does make you push you towards things that can help you make sense of the universe, <laughs> for sure. And and for a lot of people, that that does happen by gravitating towards conservative or fundamentalist traditions.
2: Right, and so one of the things that I ask my and and it doesn't necessarily have to be fundamentalism right now. In the strictest sense of fundamentalism as we knew it in 1925. Mm-hmm. Because, see, you actually said the very thing that was the most important that the epigenetics conversation can point us towards is that even after the originating impulse is gone, the mutation of the DNA remains. And so you might not necessarily be triggered ever again. You know, if you say you, your grandparents or your great grandparents were those people alive in 1925. Mm-hmm. You, you could be a person who would never be triggered by evolution, but you could be triggered by something else to move towards authoritarianism or a profound need for order or the need to blame or scapegoat someone else because you feel like they've infringed on the boundary that you think is the most important thing. So, see, it doesn't have to be evolution. It doesn't have to be German higher criticism that triggers you. The gene mutation is there. And what could trigger you could be any other kind of event that makes you feel unsafe or makes you feel less than or makes you feel like some elite person is looking down at you.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: And so. and and so it could be, you know, anything. It, it can be almost anything. And that's why the, that's why the gene has to be fixed. Right. <laughs> you know yeah. so because um, it just shows its head. And I do think it shows its head almost hourly on Twitter.
0: <laughs> yes, it does. Yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, for sure.
2: Such a shame and blame culture. Mm. I mean, Twitter itself is like the shame and blame machine,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: It's... and
2: it, and to me, um, I've actually made personal commitments. It's very hard uh, because Twitter creates a culture where that shame and blame thing is valorized, and I I have certainly fallen into it at times. And man, as soon as I do it, I either try to take down tweets that I have mis you know misfired, or you know on occasion yeah. I apologize to people, different things like that. But I really have committed myself. It's like, how do I live outside of this kind of traumatized culture that has created these pathways of shame and scapegoating over the last hundred years,
0: right. Yeah. it's very hard because, as you said, it's it's gamified on Twitter. Like it's all about visible, quantified reactions and and retweets and likes and replies and all those things. Um, and it, it yeah, it hits. All sorts of receptors in your brain, dopamine and otherwise, <laughs> yeah. um, and and wanting to uh, respond and defend and lash out. Uh, it's yeah, it's not not always the best place if you're a traumatized person. Right. I've really been fascinated by the the sort of turn that this conversation had. I didn't sort of expect to be talking about trauma within the context of institutions, especially over over the course of. 100 years, but it's been very enlightening in that regard. I do wanna bring things back to sort of the present moment that we're living in. There were some things about the development of the religious rights and that I think um, we could save for maybe another conversation another time. But we are living in this moment of there being a world historical pandemic uh, and a, frankly, a field response from our federal government to address this before it became a pandemic and one of the results of that is that we are seeing culture wars sort of being waged by people that that are Christian nationalists and other types of conservatives you know we can th- throw around a lot of different labels and we can nitpick them if we want that's totally fine but one of the things that a lot of people that might be familiar with the type of culture wars that have been waged between fundamentalists and the broader culture especially as the way they see uh, the way fundamentalists tend to frame it is it's fundamentalism versus secularism and the broader culture. Now we actually have this instance where the public health of our country is being threatened by people that insist on churches meeting, meeting in person, pushing for reopening because capitalism is God's chosen uh, way in which to spread wealth, like and there's there's all sorts of uh, arguments out there. But what is your your read on the way that is being presented by those more conservative groups and the way in which they frame their arguments, as well as the ways in which you may have seen other religious groups? And feel free to not use the way I'm doing conservative and liberal. Use your own terminology <laughs> as you like. Um, but other Easily called progressive denominations, <laughs> and denominations of all sorts, uh, and religions of all sorts are using um, technologies and other things to continue to make community. I know that that's that's a two-part question um, with a lot of preface, but I I wanted to sort of contextualize the question a bit and just say how how what's your read on on both reactions. To this particular moment in history that we're living in.
2: Oh well, it, your question is huge.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: And, <laughs> and my my easiest answer is, you know, I think I think that um, the religious traditions that are like th- what I would call the brand label religious traditions. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Rather than saying conservative or liberal, mm-hmm. but the brand label sorts of traditions, so the the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholics, and uh, and and uh, the ones that have the familiar old fashioned signs and buildings, um, they have I think generally you know taken the science you know pretty seriously, and um, even when they didn't want to, it shut. You know, most of them have shut their churches. You know, most of those denominations are not holding uh, services and have not been for the last two months, including through Easter, which is just was very hard uh, for, on them. And so, I think that on that side of the coin, you have an enormous amount of what I what I call fear, sadness, and grief. Um, you know, and so the fear is when you know, will anybody come back after? we've been closed so long, you know, cause a lot of those churches are in decline. Um, and then um, the, you know, the sadness is missing one another, you know, missing familiar patterns, missing their friends in churches, missing their, their rituals and their rights. Um, and, you know, a lot of them, frankly, uh, you know, have had to go to online kinds of, services and that's not been easy for them because these have for by and large been the been the churches that have been most resistant to the technological revolution that's all around us so that's been very hard and then grief i you know i they they believe the science they believe the numbers and they're seeing the deaths you know because a lot of these religious traditions are full of people who are older and you know they're they're watching the the memorial services stack up that they're going to have to have after, you know, they can safely reopen again, and they're also not able to do the kind of ministry they normally would do uh, because we're not supposed to touch one another, and that that's just huge. So I think on that side of the score, you know, you do have a sense, you you have responses and reactions that are full of all those three things: um, fear, sadness, and grief. And on the other hand, I think you know evangelicals have uh, the 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 very you know sort of more radical evangelicals and conservative evangelicals have lived inside of a world that doesn't believe science by and large for a long time, so that they were pretty skeptical uh, to begin with that all this was happening. Not all of them, but some, but many of them, and so I think they were much slower, you know, to close down their churches. And then they pulled off of this history of persecution that they have and so the idea is that liberal cultures and elites have wanted to persecute them and so this using the pandemic as an excuse to close their churches down you know it mm-hmm. becomes a a sort of heightened sense of paranoia it's again they're replaying 1925 someplace in their minds you know is if we don't stand up for the truth if we don't resist the secular hordes they're going to permanently take away our religious freedom, or they're going to close us down forever. And so they pulled off of those persecution complexes that have been part of that shame culture for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I think, you know, obviously, those traditions also have a a very high view of uh, the miraculous. And it's often tied to their views of the end of the world. And so, you know, there's this idea that the faithful will be protected from the the, the, the virus.
0: A remnant, that's right. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah, and so, you know, you can have a service and God will, t- God will take care of you because God is with you. And, you know, what we've seen from that, of course, is we've seen pastors die you know, who have done that. And it's really sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that high sense of God's providential care, which is always true. God does care for all of us. And God does take care of, of human, humankind because God loves humankind, but God does not do that to the expense of using common sense, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, uh, but in evangelical and Pentecostal universe, um, it's all God and no common sense. And so that's been problematic. And then that gets tied into their ideas about the end of the world is that this is God's judgment against sin, or this is God ushering in the last days or what have you. Um, but there's a lot of that out there as well. So I think that those are kind of the, the, um, frames in which the two larger sorts of religious bodies in the United States are existing that sort of larger, more, um, traditional mainstream brand name, whatever you want to call it Mm -hmm. group that has taken science seriously, but is still afraid, still very sad. Um, you know, it's full of full of real, real grief. Um, and then, um, the, um, more, the The heirs of the fundamentalist movement and Pentecostals who have elevated the miraculous, who see this as God's divine intervention, bringing about God's plan for the end times, and um, who see it as persecution,
0: yeah, and it's hard it's hard to see the 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 human cost on both sides uh, just because that's the all the grief we're all having to hold right now. Yeah. In this moment, so.
2: Yeah, and I think that that actually is one thing that we might as 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 we are able uh, to re-enter into space with one another um, is that on both sides of that ledger there has been the loss of life mm-hmm. and yeah. the, and the loss of things we love. Right. And yeah. in that sense of lostness. Uh, maybe who knows? Maybe there can be some new paths of finding healing for what has been broken for a long time.
0: Well, I really appreciate the way in which you've contextualized things. Again, I, it did not occur to me to really think of these things within the frame of trauma. That is definitely the way I approach things in the other podcast I do, <laughs> um, because it's it's more about people's lives and and. Their, their roles in this, their individual roles. But I'm very thankful for the way in which you've posited this, this idea of, of trauma playing out amongst in, institutions and throughout history. Um, and it's given me a lot to think about. Where can people find your, your writing uh, and wherever, wherever else you might be online?
2: Uh, well, I have a website, dianabutlerbass.com. Uh, people can follow me on Twitter, at Diana Butler Bass. Um, I'm, I have a public Facebook page. I don't use that quite as much as I used to, but it's there under my name, Diana Butler Bass as well. And um, my books, I, I just finished my 11th book. It's not for sale yet. It will be out sometime early next year. I've written a book on Jesus, which is kind of fun. Um, and a surprise to many people who know me, you're finally going to talk about that's <laughs> Jesus in a book. <laughs> so uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that book coming out. Um, but um, you know, my other things on history and social change and spirituality, um, any bookstore, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, all your local and independent bookstores uh, can get all of my books. And uh, I hope people will be interested in hearing some of the, the words that I've put into the world. I've always tried to heal. That's and great. and always try to make the connection between our individual lives and the the history that we make
1: mm-hmm.
2: simply by being alive together in this moment. So our individual lives matter; um, they become the stuff of history, even yeah. if we ourselves don't become a famous name. That's together right. Together, we're making it.
0: That's right. I totally agree, Diana. Thank you so much for for taking the time to talk to me today.
2: Oh, it's been a pleasure, Blake. And I'm glad. Congratulations on this new podcast. And um, I hope it does really well.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you very much.